I have to confess, I'm struggling a little bit. This is just kind of a teaser. Uh, it's not enough time for all the conversations we want to have and all the connections we want to make. And there certainly hasn't been enough time to explore in depth all the topics uh, that we presented. But it's our prayer that this is just the first opportunity that we'll have to facilitate uh, a number of presentations, ongoing opportunities for us uh, to strengthen ourselves with regard to being effective uh, in cross-cultural ministry. So I just want to say personally thank you uh, for your attendance and uh, let you know that if you're feeling like there's just not enough time uh, to get through everything, I feel the same way. So we're just going to rejoice that the Lord set the table for us and, and take advantage of all that he does uh, allow us to today. Well, listen, uh, we have a very uh, exciting afternoon plan for us as well. And uh, I'm particularly grateful to introduce to a friend of ours, uh, Chris Williams, who serves on the board of the Masters Academy International, for which we're very grateful, representing uh, a clear voice of counsel, uh, field experience, practical experience, both as a pastor and as a theological educator. Chris really um, is kind of a patriarch uh, to us within the TMAI organization because he was one of the early champions uh, for faithful theological education. Uh, it's not a comment about his age, it's a comment about God's using him to be faithful. And we're really grateful for what he's done through, through Chris. Chris comes at this time to speak to us. Please welcome Chris Williams. Thank you, my friend. Thank you, Dr. Mark Tadlock, for putting me into this very humbling and intimidating situation. Uh, it's a privilege to address you men, and uh, I pray that as I present uh, inerrancy issues in theological education in India and Southeast Asia, <coughs> um, Subtitle, Urgency for Inerrant Theological Education today, um, you will have a burden to pray for that region. My task this afternoon is to present a brief survey of the underlying issues in theological education in India and Southeast Asia. There are many nations in the latter region, and each have their own unique cultures and challenges which I'm not addressing. It's impossible to represent adequately the region assigned to me. I'm bound, therefore, to speak in general terms. Each country is different and has clear distinctions, but this is a brief survey. I'm primarily speaking and going to focus on India and Myanmar. Again, in general terms, I'm proposing uh, to be generally historical Hopefully, you will not sleep on me after that heavy meal. It's wake-up time. I know you've been listening to uh, all the morning sessions uh, that you have already been exposed to, but wasn't that refreshing before lunch? That was soul-washing. Tremendous experience. I want to say a little on my own background. I was born and grew up and remain in India. I had British education in India and until high school, 
learned to say aluminium, not aluminum. <laughs> but because of my Indianness mixed with British education, schooling, and now all this American exposure, I am confused. <laughs> How do we say evangelical? Is it evangelical or, or um, evangelical? But whatever. I grew up an Anglican. I thank God for that background because I learned so much. God was tremendously gracious to me even before he saved me. By God's grace, someone put in my hand um, a series of verse-by-verse studies and so I went through the Gospels of Mark and John and then that great historical book on the church, the book of Acts, and finally that wonderful treatise of the Apostle Paul, the book of Romans, and complementing it, the book of Galatians, all uh, between the ages of 12 to 15, while I was in middle school. And that was the part of the process that led to salvation. I soon discovered that most of the expat clergy in my church did not fully believe in the Bible. But I had a deep sense of call immediate to my conversion that God had called me to be a preacher. And I was slated to go to the church-related seminary but informed my Welsh minister, he had no relationship to the heritage of Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, he, he was a very, very uh, intelligent theologian but didn't really subscribe to the word of God. Uh, and I told my bishop as well that their training would leave me with just the covers of the Bible as inspired since I would be taught in their summary that most of the contents of that uh, book between the covers are suspect. And so I escaped going into an Anglican seminary. And the Lord graciously continued to lead me and in the first very first years of my conversion, I was involved in groups that had a strong commitment to daily Bible reading, doctrinal purity, and a high view of and trust in God. And as a teenager, while still in the Anglican church, I was introduced to a strong understanding and conviction of the verbal and plenary inspiration of Scripture. Inerrancy was taught to me. And my young heart just absorbed it. Every word of the Bible is true. There are no errors in the original autographs. And we can thank God for the translations that came to us with scholars who had committed themselves to the authority of Scripture and studied the original languages and were very um, scrupulous in their translation. The Bible cannot be authoritative and infallible if it is errant. I learned that all doctrine, but not just doctrine, but also practice must be under the authority of a Bible that is entirely authoritative. As an Anglican, I was also introduced to the ecumenical movement and later to the charismatic movement 
my deep interactions with both these movements helped me to see that there was not much difference in them. Both were committed to unity with an emphasis on love, but a willingness to compromise on truth. Even evangelicalism became blurred, morphed into new evangelicalism, losing its distinctiveness. One professor of, an, of the Old Testament told us in his class that a distinction between conservative and liberal are no longer relevant. The dean of another leading seminary scoffed at a book I was reading, and some of you might be familiar with Lincel's The Battle for the Bible. I said, that's redundant. The real issues are social justice and human rights in theological discourse. I was involved in ministry as a volunteer and then in a full-time capacity. But from the earliest years of my walk with God, I've seen a gradual slide in the Christian scene in the regions where I live and minister. Evangelicals were losing out to the liberals but were constantly in denial. I share my own background to underline the fact that even in that situation that may be dominated by liberalism and neo-evangelicalism, I am evidence that God is faithful. And there are many who have not bowed their knees to Baal. We need to find these men and train them. Amen. There's hope. At the symposium, we're concerned with the urgency of inerrancy. The, the word inerrancy is not generally used in most of our schools. Most will affirm the final authority of the Bible, but not spell out what the implications of that authority might be. The Asian theological scene actually began truly evangelical, post-independence though, and with the nationalistic movements of the 1950s, liberalism veered its head. Liberalism mixed with potent feminism, then added the spice of charismatic renewal movements, globalization, environmental and ecological concerns, they became the big issues in theological education and the end result has been devastating. And all of this became a great concoction of confusion. Most theological institutions retain a doctoral statement of faith and cling on to a statement that affirms the authority of the Bible, but they're just paying lip service to this. They have turned to ideologies of the world and began, begun to embrace a course that competes with the secular centers of learning, attempting to provide answers to the world's problems with human solutions. Most Christians no longer carry Bibles to church. That's the practical outcome of this. They may carry their hymn books, symbolizing traditionalism. But only a handful carry Bibles, and even pastors may not carry Bibles. The exposition of Scripture is rare, 
Much like the times when the Old Testament Samuel was born, there was no open vision. The word of the Lord was rare. Pastors, I mentioned this already, but worse still, they rarely read their Bibles for their own edification. Most don't know the scriptures. So they do not have anything of real substance to teach the people. As I was preparing to speak, I thought of some scripture that I want to quote that emphasized the importance from scripture, that every word of scripture is truth. And we are in the truth business when we talk about the Bible. Very quickly, Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 3, where God's word says, He humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. Why? That he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone. But man lives by every word. The very life of man is by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus quoted it in Matthew 4.4. In Psalm 119, verse 160, the psalmist says, The sum, the totality of your word is truth. And every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Or think of these words in 2 Samuel chapter 22, verse 31. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. Or Proverbs chapter 30 verses 5 and 6. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield for those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words. I mean they're sufficient, aren't they? Lest he rebuke you. Aren't you afraid of that? And you found to be a liar. Just think about it. When Jesus prayed. In that high priestly prayer. prayer, What did he pray for? In verse 17 of John 17. He said sanctify them. I mean we get saved. And then we go through a lifetime. Time of being. Transformed into the image of Christ. That sanctification. Sanctify them How? By thy truth, thy word is truth. And how big a tragedy it is. A tragedy that should bear no tolerance. To have these words in the Bible and not accept them as true. We've already had a tremendous piercing to our own souls as we heard in our previous session 2 Timothy chapter 3 but I want to read from verse 14 onwards because there's an exhortation there in verse 14 continue but as for you Timothy Paul is exhorting his son in the faith continue don't forsake it 
Don't let it go. Don't change into something else. Continue in what you have learned and have come to be convicted of. You're convinced of, firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. And that from childhood, from infancy. And most of us have grown up in that conviction, haven't we? And in Asia, when the gospel first came to us, that's what we grew up on. I mean, I've met the old folk who are in leadership of the churches. And when they hear about what we stand for, they say, that's exactly what the old missionaries taught us. And then I ask them, then why have you not continued in it? Why has it changed? From infancy, you have been acquainted with the sacred scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ. No wonder people are not getting saved in our churches. No wonder our churches are filled with people who say they are Christians, but they have no idea what that really means. Let's hear the strong indictment of our present deviation from the inerrant word of God as you look at Jeremiah 23, verse 36. But the burden of the Lord you shall mention no more. For the burden is every man's own word, and you pervert the words of the living God, the Lord of hosts, our God. You've heard these words, you know these words. We don't need an exposition of these words. We are expositors. We hold to the veracity of scripture. But as we think of these things and, and as we look at our situation worldwide, not just in Asia, I want us to pause and ask God. And I want to take us, uh, us to take a moment and pause and ask God to give us broken hearts that we might, like Daniel and Nehemiah, break down and weep for our own situations, in our own fields of operation and ministry, and pray, God, work your good work through your word. Will you pray in your hearts just for this moment? In Proverbs chapter 30 and the first four verses, you have the words of Agar, the son of Jake, the oracle. The man declares, I'm weary, O God, I'm weary, O God, and worn out. Surely I am too stupid to be a man. I have not the understanding of a man. I have not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? And what is his son's name? Surely you know. Very often, even in public, I have had to make this statement. You know, I, 
I really want to be known as stupid. I really don't mind because I am. I mean, I have no intelligence except in my degrees in human learning. But in the real things that matter about God, his revelation, and understanding of life as it really should be, I'm stupid. And I need this book to fill my heart, my soul, because I have no other wisdom except from this book. So you can have your science and, and your intelligence and try to work out all the answers. But this book is enough to fill my mind, to really know the truth about everything that needs to be known. So there are issues that have led to the dilution of theological education in Asia. Let me address that. There was a huge shift in India as she gained independence from British rule. The leadership in theological education began to be passed on to nationals. In a country like Myanmar, a similar shift in leadership took place. However, unique to Myanmar was the military takeover in the early 1960s. This led to a near total shutdown of English language education across the board. You've got to be there to understand how devastating that was. It should break your heart because of the consequences of that. The country itself was closed to the outside world for over 50 years. You may be familiar with the term bamboo curtain. A few managed from there to travel abroad and liberal theology and feminism made their entries even through the bamboo curtain. And culturalization and contextualization became key issues. I estimate there are more theological seminaries, Bible schools, Bible colleges in Asia than in all of the US of A and Europe. If you look just at India itself, and even a small country like Myanmar, almost every alphabet of the English language has one or two or more schools categorized under each alphabet. Almost every state in these countries has one or more schools. Be clear about this. There's no dearth of theological schools in these countries. There are well-established seminaries, some even 150 or 200 years old. And you will be surprised that even in Myanmar, some schools have over 1,500 students. But there is a famine in the land. There are several strands of influence on the theological scene. I picked just a few. It definitely is not exhaustive. There is, first of all, in my list, an intimidation by secular scholarship and academic excellence. A cursory glance at the history of theological education and its institutions, Bible schools, colleges, seminaries, 
will help one to see that these evolve from being basic centers for training simple evangelists, and sometimes they were drivers and cooks turned evangelists and pastors, who would be sent to preach the basic gospel by expat missionaries. As countries developed, these institutions became institutions of higher learning, competing with emerging modernization in their nations. As the nation and cultures developed, as many broke the shackles of colonialism, as the roots of nationalism and radical and revolutionary ideas began to challenge the church, the basic Bible schools turned into colleges and evolved into seminaries. With the contributions of many radicalized European worldviews that had overtaken the church in Europe and the growing influence of the World Council of Churches, and liberal theologies, expat missionaries thus influenced, introduced higher theological education that subtly but fundamentally moved away from the authority of scripture. Most of them, however, maintained and continue to maintain so-called evangelical doctrinal statements. There was a growing desire to be relevant. The idea was to make national church leaders capable of facing the challenge of growing nationalism. A gradual but systematic slide into contextualization and syncretism began to take place. Many seminaries began to adopt national cultural theologies. There was a commitment to do new theologies that were relevant to each one's cultural context. There were movements of theologies that adopted radical, liberal, liberation not liberal, but liberation ideas and created motives for such radicalization, making Moses and Jesus into models of liberalized, liberal, uh, liberation. Sorry, In some places, Jesus holding a machine gun was acceptable. I mean, that's what the Bible taught them from their perspective. In addition to being drawn into liberation theologies, you find seminaries getting distracted from their main focus of training men in the Bible and the gospel. Globalization, urbanization, ecology, the environment, religious pluralism, national and cultural identity began to be central in the syllabi and curriculum of most schools. Many schools also adopted psychology and philosophy as core subjects. Combine all this with the evangelicals' growing fear of being left behind in this pursuit of so-called respectable scholarship. Much of Asia was colonized by the British, thus the missionary enterprise in Asia was largely, largely European, with the Americans entering the Asian field later. The effects of what was happening in England and Europe among the weakening evangelicalism and the increasing compromise in theological education had its impact in Asia. Most seminaries began to doubt the veracity of the Bible. The first 11 chapters of Genesis were suspect. The miraculous and the supernatural were categorized together with the myths and legends of native religions. Today, most theological institutions will not teach with any real authority the fact of a six-day, 24-hour Creation, Noah's Ark and Flood will be relegated to parable that highlights some spiritual relevance but does not refute evolutionary theories 
that falsely calculate the age of the earth as billions of years old and the miracles of the Old and New Testament are explained away. The Bible becomes a great piece of literature that is devoid of any spiritual authority and hence leaves the church weakened. Add to these several issues pertaining to recognition and standardization. Several accrediting agencies were formed in a culture of prestige rather than godly learning raised its ugly head. Theological education became a pursuit more of pride instead of service in the spirit of Christ. A second trend was that missiology became more important than theology. This symposium began with Dr. Tatlock stating a very important point. Inerrancy is a missiological issue. In Asia, missiology overran theology, especially biblical theology. Pragmatic, sociological considerations, psychological studies that helped evangelists to enhance the numbers that turned to Christ began to redefine the gospel and gradually the whole message of the Bible. You must not miss the the work of John Mott and the impact of Edinburgh in 1910. Or later the establishment and worldwide influence of the World Council of Churches on the theological trends in Asia. John Mott was a pioneer in the student volunteer movement in the mid-1800s. It began very, very evangelical. Through the seeds of prayer and students getting on fire to reach the world for Christ. And slogans like the evangelization of our world and our generation flamed the fire of missionary endeavor worldwide. There's another name that is important in Asia, and it's J. Wascombe Pickett, who was deeply influenced by John Mott. John Mott, who is considered the father of ecumenism. Both these men were well-intentioned men. Pickett served in India for 46 years as pastor, editor, publisher, secretary of Christian councils, and bishop in the Methodist Church. He authored the book, Mass Movements of India. Excellent analysis of how India got Christianized. He records how John Mott helped him to be a results-oriented person in his ministry. And that's key to the failure of such men and their legacy. Sad, but true. This is what he says. Acting on advice given to me by the great missionary statement, John R. Mott, I determined to challenge every assumption that I could recognize as underlying the work of my church in India, not to prove any of them wrong, but to find out if I could, whether they seemed to be right or wrong, how, as indicated by their results. That's pragmatism. Pickett, in turn, deeply influenced Dr. Donald McGavran. Now, you're familiar with this name. 
I'm not sorry for quoting some of the oldies. McGavran and his impact on theological education in, in significant parts of Asia is not to be dismissed lightly. McGavran was born in Damo, India in 1897, MK. He was a third generation missionary. It was during the 1920s and 1930s that the seed of the church growth movement began to develop in McGavran's mind. Several men had influenced McGavran's thinking. Men like William Carey, Roland Allen, Kenneth Scott Latourett. However, the greatest impact on him was J. Wascombe Pickett. McGavran said of Pickett, I lit my candle at Pickett's fire. Result oriented. With that in mind, understand that the setting up of McGavern School of World Mission at Fuller became a beacon light for many who pursued so-called higher theological education. Many of these were influential expat missionaries who came to Asia. In turn, they influenced Asian men and women to pursue such higher theological education at the School of World Mission. Full scholarships, underline that, full scholarships were more easily available for studies there than anywhere else. Church leaders returned with postgraduate degrees in missiology. However, something very disconcerting was taking place. Missiology was replacing biblical theology. The kind of pragmatic sociological evangelistic strategy is being spawned and the underlying reinterpretation of the gospel subtly diverted the church away from not just the basic gospel message but almost all fundamental doctrinal truth. Pragmatic success and the numbers game superseded faithfulness to the teaching of the full counsel of God. Inerrancy continued to be irrelevant while paying homage to a doctrinal statement that included the authority of the Bible. A third issue was sponsorship and free higher theological education. I've already alluded to that. If you get into a conversation with leaders in the theological arena of Asia, and especially those who still have a concern, and please understand this, that many Christian leaders, even in the liberal camp, in the ecumenical camp, are really, truly churchmen. And they are truly burdened for the church. But their definitions are wrong because their premise is wrong. They've forsaken the scriptures. But they have a concern for the church's spiritual health. And you will soon find out in conversation with them that a key factor in liberalism finding a foothold in Asian theological schools was the need to have qualified national teachers and professors. Most of the expats who had established and continued to run the training were forced to leave because of governmental restrictions on foreign missionaries in 1972. The government of India legislated the exit of existing expat missionaries and began to disallow new ones. Even before that, in 1962, Myanmar expelled all expat 
missionaries. Combined with this, the need to fill the vacuum thus created was the availability of scholarships for higher theological education. These were mainly available from prestigious schools like Princeton and Yale. And don't be surprised if you find PhDs in Myanmar with a PhD from Princeton. Nationals returned with prestigious degrees, but empty hearts. Much knowledge, but a weakened confidence in an an errant Bible. These men taught in all the leading seminaries of Asia. Graduates from such training in turn became teachers and professors in the smaller schools, regurgitating what they had been taught. And they were teaching others who graduated to become pastors of rural churches and Sunday school teachers in their churches. Most of the churches, Christian education departments, are overseen by graduates of such institutions who were shallow in biblical understanding or worse still, were denying the authority of scripture. Are you seeing what's happening? Is your heart breaking? There are other influences that I'm aware of that dilute the whole scene, like the charismatic emphasis on experience over truth and radical feminism, even evangelical feminism. We have that quite a bit even in India. They've raised their heads in Asia in big ways. Well, I have definitely not been exhaustive in my presentation, but I hope I have given you some idea. In this limited assessment of the major trends, in most parts of my world, the Bible is actually missing from center stage. This glaring compromise explains the lack of any real exposition of scripture in the pulpits and preaching that is based on man's opinion is rampant. They address political, sociological, and emotional felt needs of people. Is there an urgency? You know, it's almost too late. We urgently need to bring the church back to the Bible And doing that, reestablish with all boldness, but love and gentleness and compassion. The absolute authority of an inerrant Bible. The lack of an emphasis on inerrancy and therefore an undermining of the authority of scripture has led to a weak church. Weak obedience in living out all the commandments mandated to be obeyed in the discipling of the nations. That's the Great Commission. The Bible, its message is our only hope. Amen. Nehemiah 8 speaks to our situation where the Bible is brought back to public life, opened up, understood, taught. There will be new life generated in ourselves 
and in the church, the true church of our Lord Jesus Christ. Pray for Asia. Thank you.